Hello, everyone, and welcome to Crime Time. I am your host, Maslin Hire, and I hope everyone is having a fantastic week and is ready to listen. If you don't already know this, this is a podcast about old case files and crime in our world. Today, we are going to be talking about two separate case files, and I hope you enjoy. The first case file we are going to be talking about is the case file of Samoda. On the night of October 12, 1984, Samoda and two of her friends, one male, one female, went on the town to the Texas State Fair. The three friends went to the Rio Room Dance Club and stayed there until after midnight. According to the testimony of the male who accompanied the two girls, Samoda was very friendly. She was going from table to table talking to people and it seemed like she knew everyone there. After the party, Samoda drove her two companies to their homes, first dropping off the male around 1 a.m., then the female. The male later testified that he returned home and went straight to sleep. After that, Samoda next went to her boyfriend's apartment to say goodnight, and then she returned to her place. The boyfriend stated at about 1.45 he got a call from her, who told him that there was a man in her condo who asked to use the phone in the bathroom. It was not made clear if the man was already there when she got home or if she allowed him to come in. Talk to me, Samoda reportedly said to her boyfriend. Then she said that she would call right back and hung up. When she did not call back, her boyfriend phoned her and no one answered. He then later drove to her condo and no one responded when he knocked on the door, which was locked. He had dialed 911 and the police officers arrived at around 2.17 a.m. and broke through the door. They discovered Samoda's dead body on the ground. The autopsy showed that the victim had been repeatedly stabbed, dying from wounds to her heart. Her case went cold and her friend and roommate, Sheila Wyskowski, decided that that was unacceptable. While watching the infamous O.J. Simpson trial a decade after Simona's death, talk of DNA samples caught her attention. Knowing there was blood collected from Simona's crime case that did not belong to her, Wyskowski called police instantly, asking them to take another look at her friend's case file. She got nowhere and decided to get her private investigator license so she she could gain access to the samples herself. She continued to work on the case files even after the police gave up. In 2006, Wyckowski finally convinced the police to reopen the case. It took two years of DNA testing, but in the end it matched with Donald Bess, a convicted murderer who was found guilty and sentenced to death. Wyskowski still working as a private investigator who solved one of her best friends. I think it is beyond interesting that her best friend closed her case file and found the true killer. Wyskowski is a famous private investigator and her name will never be forgotten. Isn't it crazy? All I know is that I want Wyskowski as a friend if I ever get murdered. Alright, that's going to be the end of our first case file. And now let's look at our second case. On May 25th, 1968, on the night of her 11th birthday, Mary was with her friend Nora Jean Bell. The two decided to set a trap for Martin Brown, the son of a neighbor. He was only four years old. They attracted him with the, use, the excuse of giving him candy, ta- taking him to an abandoned house nearby. And then Mary will strangle him to death. The parents of the child did not see him returning later the day, in the night. They called the police, and the body was found the next day. The case was dismissed as an accident, as there was no obvious signs of the child's body that suggested an attack. After three weeks, something weird happened in Martin's kindergarten class. 
Someone had sneaked inside and carried out vandalism. They overturned classrooms, destroyed chairs, and on the rolls they wrote Martin had been murdered. The police investigated, but in the end the case closed, stating that it was just vandalism without any other motives. Later, on July 31, 1968, Mary and Norma decided to strike again, and they targeted a young boy, Brian Howe. He was just three years old. Like the previous murder, they lured him with the excuse of candy and later strangled him. But this time, they went further and engraved a small M with scissors on his chest, as well as cutting his hair and leaving the corpse in a field. The police spent countless hours trying to figure out who was committing all of these crimes. They interviewed many, many people amongst the community and then the children of the kindergarten class. Many of the kids stated that Mary and Norma were very suspicious. This led the police to and further investigate Mary and Norma and put piece to piece together and decided that they were indeed guilty of these crimes. Then in August of 1968, the two were arrested. Mary was found guilty while Norma was just there as an acquaintance for the murders, as she was considered an inactive spectator of the killings. Mary declared that Norma had lied and that she had been active, actively involved in the murders, but the investigators did not believe her st statements. Then on December 17, 1968, Mary Bell was sentenced to life in prison. Mary Bell remained in prison until 1980, when after several psychiatric treatments, during her detention period, she was declared healed and later released. She is now living amongst the society under an alias name, and who knows, she might be living right next door to you. This case is known as the 11-year-old killer, as she was only 11-year-old committing all of these crimes. That is the craziest stories I've ever heard. I could never imagine my 11-year-old self committing horrendous acts like this. Well, that is going to be the end of our talk this week, and I hope you enjoyed Crime Time, and I hope to catch you next time.